Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for our day. Thank you for this evening. Thank you for our time together tonight to look at the timeline of history. Lord, we ask that you would help us gain wisdom and knowledge to learn from the past. Lord, that you would be even more greatly glorified in the future. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, we left off at the year 1215, which was the year of the Magna Carta, a foundational document that has contributed to the very liberties we, we hold today as free men here in the West. Um, we talked about Pope Innocent III and the Fourth Lateran Council. That was the council that passed the, the um, dogma of transubstantiation. It forbid uh, by the Bible being translated into the common language. Also at this council is where the Pope declared himself and all subsequent popes the highest authority in the land. Uh, and this, in particular, spoke to and was in reference to the Holy Roman Emperor. Because remember, by this time, uh, the, now there's tension, there's conflict between Pope and Emperor. And while this was going on in 1215, there was a young, young man who was the heir to the throne. His name was Frederick II. Frederick was born in, uh, I believe, 1197. Um, I think is when he was born, or 1194. Um, anyways, his father died when he was very young, and he became the king, so to speak, at the age of two. Though he didn't rule, obviously, at age two, there was a regent who ruled in his stead until Frederick was old enough to take the throne. Uh, he became the, he, he fired his regent at age 12, and then at age 15, he ma got married, he married, and took full control of the throne. Um, I just always think about your average 15-year-old today ruling large portions of the world um, Frederick actually did it pretty well, um, which, which is kind of amazing um, when you consider that at two, his father died, and then when Frederick was five years old, his mother died, and upon his mother's death, in her will, she basically left the responsibility of raising Frederick with Pope Innocent III. And so Frederick became the foster child of Pope Innocent. Now, Pope Innocent was a really busy pope. He's one of those popes that his name sticks out in history because he did a lot. And you can imagine, as Pope Innocent was doing all the things he was doing as pope, uh, Frederick was not really on his radar a lot. 
Subsequently, um, Frederick ran the streets a lot as a child. Frederick lived in poverty. Frederick had to beg for food as a child. And he is the king of Germany, the king of Sicily, and the next Holy Roman Emperor. Um, he, was, he was fairly neglected as a child under the Pope's tutelage. Um, he did not go to school on a regular basis, but he was a brilliant man. Uh, Frederick grew up speaking nine different languages, and he could read and write seven of those languages. He never went to formal school. But he was, uh, was self-educated. He read volumes of history books and other literature. Um, and as he grew, his quest for knowledge and his desire to grow in knowledge and in his education only increased. Um, he started the University of Naples in uh, Naples, Italy, and he also made the University of Salerno one of the greatest medical colleges in Europe. Um, he loved science, and the arts, and literature. He loved involving himself in those, and he loved promoting those. Um, and so, in a lot of ways, Frederick was a precursor to uh, the Renaissance, which would, was still a few centuries out. He was the Holy Roman Emperor, which, which the King of Germany, it, it centered in Germany, but he was also the King of Sicily. Uh, Frederick spent most of his life in Sicily. He preferred the warm Mediterranean climate to the cold German climate. Um, he led crusades. Um, so he's known as uh, Frederick II, the amazement of the world. Um, Semper Mundi, I believe, is, is, was the title given to him. Uh, and as much as he was loved, he was also hated. And part of the reason is when he set out on... The fifth or sixth, some people call it the fifth crusade, some people call it the sixth crusade. But when he set out on this crusade, his method of regaining the crown of Jerusalem, and he was crowned the king of Jerusalem. But the way that Frederick was going to go about doing that was Frederick was going to marry the daughter of the Egyptian sultan. And he made a deal, he made a treaty with the Egyptian sultan and the Egyptian sultan let Frederick have Jerusalem for a period of time. Um, Frederick also um, loved learning about different religions, so whether it was the Jews or, or, or Islam, uh, he was very diverse in his thinking and his reading. Uh, he married the daughter of the Egyptian sultan and not everybody was happy about that. So think about this. He is the Holy Roman Emperor. He is under the Pope. He represents the church, Western Christianity. But he's going to marry an Islamic woman.
to create a political, it's all politics. It was a marriage of convenience for him. The Pope, Pope Gregory the Ninth, did not, he would not stand for it. He said, you can't do this. This is a believer marrying an unbeliever. You're a professed Christian marrying a pagan. And the church won't stand for it. So when Frederick is making his way to Jerusalem to be crowned the king of Jerusalem, the Pope has sent word to all the bishops, to everybody along the way, and says, don't you dare help this guy or you will suffer the consequences. Uh, the Pope excommunicated Frederick. He forbid the bishops to help him. So by the time Frederick got to Jerusalem, no bishop would crown him the king of Jerusalem with the blessing of the church. And so Frederick said, who needs a bishop and who needs a pope? And he crowned himself the king of Jerusalem. Um, that was the kind of tension and conflict that existed between Frederick II and Pope Gregory IX. There were uh, periods of peace. They eventually signed a treaty of peace with one another because it was mutually beneficial for them uh, with some other things going on in the kingdom. Uh, the Pope also wanted to make sure that Frederick stayed in Germany and Sicily and left Italy alone. And so uh, that worked out pretty well when Pope Innocent was the Pope because Pope Innocent raised Frederick, even though he neglected him largely. They did have a long-standing relationship, and there was a relatively good relationship between them. It doesn't seem like Frederick held a grudge. He probably was glad that the Pope let him run the streets and do what he wanted to do. So he obviously didn't hold that against the Pope. But Pope Gregory, once Pope Innocent died and Pope Gregory took place, Pope Gregory didn't owe anything to Frederick. He didn't know Frederick. Um, and so that tension was very great between them, except for uh, times when it was politically expedient for both of them. Uh, pope Gregory the Ninth died in uh, 1241. The next pope after Gregory was not as interested in in pushing his weight around. He was less harsh with Frederick, and then Frederick died in 1250. And with the death of Pope Gregory IX, and with the death of Frederick II, the power struggle that had been going on for a number of centuries between emperor and pope. So if you think about um, from the 700s all the way to 1250, so for 500 years, this power struggle's been going on between popes and emperors. With the death of Gregory IX and the death of Frederick II, that struggle kind of went away. There were no more emperors after Frederick who were as brilliant or as strong as Frederick was. And so the people that took the throne of the Holy Roman Empire after that were really not strong leaders, which is why you see in time it kind of disintegrates. And so as, as this Holy Roman Empire, which under Frederick was this large area ruled by this emperor, so what you see after the death of Frederick and the death of Gregory is that those large areas kind of 
uh, evolve into the countries that we know today. Um, and so those countries became, be, began to be ruled by kings of these different regions. Those kings were at one time under the Roman emperor, now with a weak emperor and the strength of the empire declining, those nations and those countries kind of rose to prominence and began to rule themselves. And with that, because there wasn't one leader that the pope could lean on or the pope could, could use to enforce these large areas, now he had multiple kings and multiple countries that he had to deal with individually. And it just, by the nature of things, it... it it caused the power of the Pope to decline politically, even as the uh, political power of the Holy Roman Empire began to decline. So that was kind of the end of that struggle, that tension um, with the death of these two men. Um, so that was Frederick II. Then in, in uh, 12... 25, there was a man born in um, Aquino, Italy. Thomas Aquinas was born. Um, Thomas was, is known as the greatest philosopher of the Middle Ages. Some people believe he's one of the greatest philosophers of all time. But he was the greatest philosopher of the Middle Ages. Um, when Thomas was growing up, Thomas was born and grew up under Frederick II. Thomas was born into a wealthy family. Um, so he was born into a, a wealthy family, a, fa a family of means, a family who served uh, Frederick II. So they had political ties to the, to the palace and to the empire and to, to, to the emperor. In fact, Thomas's brother worked for the king and... Um, and had a position ready for Thomas with the king. In fact, the king, Frederick II, invited Thomas to come to the palace and to work for him. Um, but Thomas declined the invitation because Thomas wanted to serve the Lord Jesus. And so in his desire to serve the Lord, Thomas forsook all of his wealth, forsook his title, forsook his position, his entitled life, and uh, decided that he was going to serve the Lord. And instead of making his way to the palace to, to work under the king, he decides he's going to Paris, and he's going to join uh, the, the order of Dominican monks. He's going to become a Dominican monk and, 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 and start down that road. Now, by this time... In 1252, Thomas Aquinas, again, is another brilliant man. Very brilliant, very smart. And so Aquinas has already um, received, he's very well educated. And so when he's going to Paris to join the Dominicans, he's going to further his education and receive training as a monk. Uh, but he's also going to continue his work in terms of uh, his pursuit of academics and his pursuit of philosophy. Um, 
and, and writing. Now remember last week we talked about the difference between the Franciscans and the Dominicans. The Franciscans did not value education. In fact, they, for, they forbid their, uh, the Franciscan monks from pursuing education. Once you became a Franciscan monk, you, you didn't do what um, Thomas Aquinas did. You didn't sit around and write books and study philosophy and study science or anything like that. Um, and, and so the Dominicans and the Franciscans both took vows of poverty, but they were very different in their attitudes toward education, higher education, and, and that type of thing. And so uh, Francis, uh, Thomas Aquinas was... Um, uh, became a Dominican. Now, what's interesting, on his first journey to Paris to join the Dominicans, his family kidnaps him. So they literally, as he's riding to Paris, they kidnap him, they take him to a castle, and they hold him prisoner for almost two years. Uh, trying, they think he's gone mad because he's forsaken his wealth, forsaken his title, uh, all that is entitled to him, and, uh, and is going to become a monk. And, and you could work for the king, and we don't understand what's wrong with you. Um, but Thomas does not relent. They even, the story, there's a story where Thomas wakes up in the middle of the night, and his brothers had sent a beautiful young woman into Thomas's room to seduce him, um, thinking if, he, if he'll fall in love, you know, he'll put away this nonsense of wanting to become a monk. And uh, the story says that uh, Thomas kicked her out of the room and took a burning stick and made the sign of the cross on the door uh, to bar the way for this demon to come back into his room. Um, so his mother sees that he is really serious about his faith. He does not bend at all. He stays firm in his conviction. And so his mother realized he'll sit in this castle room secluded by himself. He's not going to change his mind. This is a call that comes from God. And so his mother helped him escape from the rest of his family. And he goes to Paris. And he enters uh, the Dominicans there and begins to further his education. Uh, he meets a guy there. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I'm confusing my, my people here. Uh, we'll talk about that guy in a little bit. Um, what is important about Thomas Aquinas, besides he wrote a lot of things, uh, a lot of really deep, heady things about philosophy, um, about the church, about theology. Um, he wrote, um, I couldn't tell you the Latin name of it, um, Summa Theologica, it was his theological work. There was another uh, work that he wrote that was basically, uh, he wrote a defense of Christianity to Jews and to Muslims uh, and to uh, unbelievers in general, but specifically he also came at it from to target those specific groups. Um, these are large volumes of writing. So he did not live to be old, but his ability to put out material was amazing. Um, so at this time in world history, in the 13th, early 13th century, 
um, or the mid-13th century, the church from its inception, so the New Testament church and the church, the early church fathers, the foundation in terms of philosophy for the early church was Plato. So it was um, Platonic thought. It was the philosophy of Plato that was really kind of the foundation of much of the church's uh, philosophy, theology, what it was founded on. Uh, if you, not, not for the Jews, but if you think about for the Gentiles. So when, when Jesus is... Um, crucified, and then he ascends to the Father, and the Holy Spirit is poured out, and the New Testament church is birthed, remember at this time, the world is, for all practical purpose, though it's ruled by Rome, it's, it's been Hellenized. Greek is the language of commerce. Um, the Greeks had influence. Greek philosophy had permeated Rome, had permeated the, the Western world. And so the foundation of philosophical thought and culture was Greek philosophy, and in particular, it was Plato. What's interesting about Thomas Aquinas, so in the West, the writings of Plato were largely read, but the, the writings of Aristotle were not as largely read. Uh, but they were in the Arab world. So there were Arab scholars who translated the writings of Aristotle into Arabic. And somewhere along the way, Thomas Aquinas gets a hold of the writings of Aristotle, begins to study the writings of Aristotle, and, um, and begins to formulate his philosophy based on the ideas of, of Aristotle. This was controversial at that time in the church. Because what Aquinas did was, was marry faith and reason together. And so um, Aquinas, Aquinas did not believe that reason was opposed to faith or faith was opposed to reason. He saw both of them as coming from God. And so Aquinas wrote his philosophy under this premise. And he largely wrote about and defended um, the ideas and the philosophy of Aristotle, trying to get Christians to understand that reason is not something we should be afraid of. Reason is something God has given us, and we should, should be able to marry faith and reason together. In fact, he, he believed, whereas many Christians at that time believed the writings of Aristotle were opposed to Christianity, Thomas Aquinas believed that the writings of Aristotle could be used to point people to Christ. And that's how he wrote his theological and philosophical works. Um, and, and one of the reasons Tom, I mean, Thomas Aquinas and his writings are still very popular today, especially in the Catholic Church, but also uh, Protestants probably don't realize how much they've been impacted by Aquinas because it was Aquinas who, who really believed that faith and reason both belong to God and we should embrace both of them, not at the expense of one or the other. Um, one, um, now, Aquinas being a Roman Catholic philosopher, 
Uh, I found this quote interesting. Aquinas writes in his Thuma Theologica, he wrote, nobody has been so insane as to say that merit is the cause of divine predestination. Now, I didn't, uh, I, I, can, I can, there's a link. You can just, um, you could probably Google that quote. I've got a link if you're interested. Um, that basically gives the full context of this where Aquinas, and this is how he would write, and this is how he argued and, and dealt with these things. And he would write objection one. Um, basically, th this little article is called whether the, foreknowledge of, whether the Foreknowledge of Merits is the Cause of Predestination. And Aquinas tackles this systematically, and, and he says, here's objection one. Here's why people believe the Foreknowledge of Merits is the cause of predestination. And he lays out object one. Then he lays out two. Then he lays out three. Then he answers each one of those with why merit, the foreknowledge of merit, is not. And it's interesting in, uh, in the last point in his uh, refutation of those, those three points of where people argue that merit is the cause of it. He links the material world to his argument about why the foreknowledge of merit is not the cause of predestination. Um, this gets really deep and complicated. If you, if you read the difference between Plato and Aristotle, and we talk, you know, I can say that there was a lot that, you know, Aristotle was a student of Plato. But Aristotle's thought and thinking was, in a lot of ways, very different than Plato's. And when you begin to read about it, it's, it's, it's almost like hurts your brain to think about how deep these guys thought about things. You know, uh, there were three main differences, and one of them is what's called forms. So Plato had this theory of forms. And that's one of the things. Plato was very theoretical. Uh, Aristotle was much, much more practical. And uh, I can't do the theory of forms uh, justice, but for instance, if you said uh, the beautiful black horse or the bright red triangle, the beautiful black horse, Plato said the form, beautiful is a form, Black is a form, and horse is a form, and they're all different. And, and so he, everything in the world was one type of form or another. And, and so he broke these things down into, I didn't even, I, I don't know how he came up with this. Whereas Aristotle would say, well, it's a horse. It's a horse, and it's beautiful in black, but it's a horse, and it's not three different forms together. It's, it's just a horse, and God made it a horse. And the very nature of that material thing, that thing basically points us to the creator of that thing. 
And so um, they looked at the world very differently, these two philosophers did. And so as Aquinas studied Aristotle, he felt like Aristotle's philosophy of the world and creation really pointed people to a creator. Uh, it didn't point them away from it. And so we can reason these things out, and they should, they should enforce our faith, strengthen our faith, not hinder our faith. And so, you know, in his argument, for instance, on this, whether uh, foreknowledge of merit causes predestination, he brings this whole philosophy of the, the nature of creation and the nature of the material world as a proof that God, God made things as he will. Why are some rocks put in walls and some rocks are just laying out there? Why are some rocks made and created in a way that they're, they can be used in a wall, but other rocks can't? And he says it's because the creator willed them to be created that way. Basically, they're all rocks, but they're all different. Why are some people predestined for... Salvation, some are not. Aquinas said, said, same reason some rocks can be used in a wall and some rocks can't be. Because that's the way God made them. Some people are saved, they're predestined to salvation because that's the way God made them. That's what God chose to do. That's what God willed. I found it fascinating that this is coming from a Catholic theologian. <laughs> but it is. Um, it was, it was pretty interesting. So Thomas Aquinas uh, was born in 1225. He became a Dominican in 1252 and really changed um, Western philosophy in, in, a, in, in a great way in terms of its relationship to faith uh, in getting the church to think differently about things and embrace a more practical way of looking at things and not being afraid of reason. Now, all of this is going to come into play later on when we get to the Renaissance and the Age of Enlightenment. And there's going to be great things, good things that can come out of this, but, but there's also things that aren't good uh, that will come out of this. Any thoughts about Thomas Aquinas? I mean, that's it's like, you could, you could probably, and there are people that do this, you could... You could you can spend your whole life studying this man and his writings. It is that deep and complex. Um, another guy at this time period. So Thomas Aquinas is the greatest philosopher of the Middle Ages. Does anyone know who the greatest scientist of the Middle Ages is? Any of my, his, any of my history students remember who the greatest Scientist of the Middle Ages is. Does anybody know who that might be? You love to have him for breakfast. That would be Roger Bacon. Roger Bacon. The most famous scientist of the Middle Ages. Now, whereas Thomas Aquinas was a Dominican... And he was from Italy. Roger Bacon was an Englishman. He was educated at Oxford. He, again, an extremely bright man. He was educated at Oxford, and then he went to the University of 
Paris and actually taught at the University of Paris. He found it kind of boring and decided he wanted to go back to English and pursue more education at Oxford. He liked Oxford better than the University of Paris. And so Eng uh, Bacon leaves his position as professor, a professor at the University of, of Paris, returns to England to go back into Oxford. But while he's on his way back, when he gets to England, he encounters a group of people that change his life. So on his way back to Oxford, he encountered a group of Franciscan monks. And Roger Bacon was so challenged by these Franciscan monks that he ended up joining the order and becoming a Franciscan in 1253. Now remember, Franciscans don't like education. But Roger Bacon joins the order of the Franciscans and he was allowed to do his work out of the public view. And Roger Bacon uh, was an amazing uh, individual. So Roger Bacon uh, developed the ideas related to reflection and refraction of light. And, and it is Roger Bacon who, through his study of reflection and refraction of light, he ended up inventing the magnifying glass in 1266. Now the telescope wasn't, was not going to be invented for still a, a couple of centuries, a few centuries, but it was this work that Roger Bacon did uh, with light and reflection and refraction that contributed to the work that eventually gave us the telescope. Uh, Roger Bacon loved mathematics and believed that almost everything in the world could be explained by numbers. Uh, he also believed that you could sail west from Europe and reach China. In fact, Christopher Columbus took the writings and the ideas of Roger Bacon as inspiration for him to sail west to try to get to the Indies. Um, some of the most amazing areas uh, Roger Bacon explored and wrote about was in the area of mechanics. In 1253, Roger Bacon believed that there would one day be means of transportation that did not involve animals that would carry men under their own power and they would go much faster than any animal could carry a man. He, let me just read you a quote from him um, about these things. 1253... Roger Bacon writes, science concerns the fabrication of machines for flying or for moving in vehicles without animals and yet with incomparable speed or of navigating without oarsmen more swiftly than would be thought possible through the hands of men. 
Flying machines can be made, and a man sitting in the middle of the machine may revolve some ingenious device by which artificial wings may beat the air in the manner of a flying bird. Also, machines can be made for walking in the sea and the rivers, even to the bottom without danger. I mean, I'm just trying to think in 1253, what made him imagine things like like that, you know? I mean, that's, it's uh, pretty, pretty incredible. Um, Roger Bacon is uh, credited with taking what he learned from one of his teachers named Robert Gro- Grossetesti, if that's pronounced correctly, uh, in developing what we basically called the scientific or inductive method of uh, study. Um, And so Roger Bacon was really big on making sure that when you do experimentation, you had to do it with a scientific method. You had to prove through experimentation. Don't just tell me this is what you think, but let's, let's, let's take it to the lab and let's prove it. Um, and so that, what is commonly known today, what's commonly used today, Roger Bacon gave us that. Uh, it's kind of, kind of ironic that Roger Bacon is responsible for that, and now men use that very same thing that Roger Bacon gave us to try to tell us that God is not real. Because you can't reproduce God in a laboratory with the scientific method. Roger Bacon would have never, he would have never, that would have never entered his mind because God, there is no need to prove God is real. Of course God is real because you can look at the world around you and know that God is real. The the whole world proves to us that God is real. Finally, uh, they don't really know why, but I'm sure it's related to all of his work. So at this time, the Pope, the Pope, and I I didn't put the Pope's name down, don't remember what his name was, but at this time, the Pope, the Pope knows what Roger Bacon is doing, and the Pope is totally on board with what Roger Bacon is doing. And the Pope asked Roger Bacon to secretly copy all of his works And give them to the Pope because the Pope wanted to read them. The Pope wanted to study them. The Pope wanted to learn what Roger Bacon was learning. Don't know if it was related to that, but somewhere along the way, the Franciscans finally said, that's it. And they exiled him and basically imprisoned him for 15 years. Um, He continued... In some form or fashion, we don't really have a lot of information about what those 15 years were like. We do know that he was released prior to his death, a few years prior to his death. And as soon as he got out, he just continued writing. And he literally wrote until he died. Uh, He died in 1292. And one of the things that Roger Bacon predicted was that science would never be able to save man from his sins. 
And even more than a man of science, Roger Bacon was a man of faith. Um, and all of his scientific work and scientific method and, and all of that, there was never a question about his faith in God. It was at this time. It was? Yes. Okay. It, it, theology already was. Theology was, I mean, Roger Bacon didn't, it, it was. Men like Roger Bacon, theology was, even with Aquinas, I mean, theology was, was part of, they didn't separate theology from science. Well, I think at this time they did. Later on, we're going to see where they don't. Oh, with the Franciscans? But that, because the Franciscans, that was not their mission. I mean, it's not that the Franciscans thought that the Dominicans were wrong. It's that the Fran that order, was, that's not what they did. So when you became Franciscan, you took a vow of poverty, and your mission was to preach the gospel. And to minister to the poor. That was your mission. And so um, they felt like those things, it's not that they felt like those things were wrong, but those things would detract from the vows you took as a Franciscan monk. So they would say, if you, don't, if you want to do that, that's great. You can't be a Franciscan monk. Um, Roger Bacon, yeah, he met Franciscans and he became a Franciscan monk. If he'd have met Dominicans, he might have become a Dominican monk because they were doing the same type of work. Uh, it worked out fine for him for a while, but um, for about 15 years, it put him in solitary confinement. Um, and, you know, to his credit, he, he endured that 15 years of exile he understood when he was doing that work. That's why the Pope asked him to secretly copy those things and give it to him. The Pope knew that what he was doing was a violation of his vows to the Franciscans. But once he took the vow, he couldn't, he couldn't break the vow. All right, anything else? The, uh, the Pope was... Okay, Clement the Fourth with Roger Bacon. Okay.